Uh, Chile awaits, um, and, uh, but there's a lot, of, a lot of information to kind of run through tonight, so let me get us started. If you happen to have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to read just uh, five verses from 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you're able to join me there, the first five verses. As we uh, kind of stop uh, tonight to have a bit of a church history moment, uh, just to kind of think about church history broadly, uh, specifically tonight, the, the, fe- uh, the uh, featured a person from church history, John Calvin, and that really sweet, pointy beard of his, all right? So all of you beard guys out there, uh, you need to get on his level, all right? 2 Timothy 4, let me uh, begin by reading, starting in verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In so many ways, we find these things being lived out in the life of John Calvin and his ministry in the days of the Protestant Reformation, and we find that uh, some 500 uh, plus years later, uh, as we'll conclude tonight by saying, there uh, there is still a need uh, for John Calvin's in our day who will preach the Word uh, and be ready in season and out of season to fulfill their ministry. Let me pray, and uh, we'll get to it. Father, we thank You for our night and for the opportunity to be together. Um, God, thank you that as we pause this evening from our normal rhythms, God, we pause to consider this moment from church history. Um, God, help us to remember that in the scope of history, in the scope of eternity, our lives are but a moment. Um, God, we get just a, a precious little time on this earth. And Father, we want to use it your glory. God, we want to use it to make the gospel known. We want to use it, God, for your good purposes in our lives. And so I pray as we look backward uh, for a few moments tonight, that it will compel us as we move forward in life and ministry together. God, thank you for the lives of uh, those that have come before us. God, thank you for their example. Help us to emulate what is good here. And we ask and we pray it all in Christ's great name. Amen. Amen. Well, John Calvin is our kind of topic of discussion tonight. So here's the first question. I told you it was coming. When you hear the name John Calvin, and maybe for some of you, you're like, I've never heard this dude's name before in my life. And that's really cool too. But if uh, you've heard the name uh, then you've also probably heard, you know, at, at least some things kind of out there. Maybe you don't understand it all, but there's some stuff that's maybe attached to John Calvin's name, rightly or wrongly. So when I say the name John Calvin, it's kind of audience participation time, all right? What comes to mind? Just, just shout it out. Oh, wow, that was a lot all at once. Uh, somebody predestination over here. Uh, somebody else. Maybe, maybe one at a time, not everybody at once. Total depravity, Calvinism, tulip, wait a minute, what? In fact, uh, I checked my phone after service this morning, uh, and a church member who shall remain nameless had sent me a picture of a field of tulips and said, this is what I think of when I hear the name John Calvin. What else may be coming to mind? Pastor, Yeah. Maybe an aspect of his life we don't think about as much. Anything else? Reformation, that's right. Yes, yeah, to be sure, absolutely. All right, so we, we've got at least some measure of familiarity with this guy by the name of John Calvin, all right? I think what, uh, what you find when you read about, when you really kind of consider Calvin's life and his ministry, 
what we find is that there are a lot of modern day things that sort of get hung on John Calvin that, uh, frankly, Calvin just didn't really have anything to do with, all right? There are a lot of caricatures created about John Calvin, many of them oftentimes very negative, that, um, uh, again, I think to know John Calvin, to know his life and ministry is, is really to, to love and appreciate, not so much to vilify him. So what I want to do tonight, while Calvin is a, uh, it's sometimes a, a complex, maybe even it's sometimes a difficult figure in church history, while there are certainly tons of aspects of theology that we can talk about when we consider Calvin's life, what I want to do, um, because we just don't have enough time, what I want to do is just to almost introduce you or maybe reintroduce you to the man and his life and his ministry. Uh, maybe over chili tonight, if you don't get uh, all of your questions answered in here, we can talk about maybe some of the finer points of Calvin's theology. But let's think about his life. Some, I'm going to move through some of this somewhat quickly. So if, you know, if, I, if I move quickly, I'm just trying to kind of get maybe to some meatier aspects of our night. And as we get to the end, uh, any questions that you guys have, I'd love to try to field those before... Um, before, before we go. John Calvin was a churchman for all ages. He was a reformer, a pastor, and a revolutionary. He was a selfless husband, a devoted father, and a noble friend. But above all, Calvin was a man whose mind was humbled and whose heart was mastered by the Lord God, the Almighty. John Calvin was born July 10th 1509 in France, a, a small town about 60 miles north of Paris. Uh, for some historical perspective here, just kind of place this in its kind of larger historical perspective, Martin Luther was 26 when Calvin was born, and it would be eight years after Calvin's birth in 1517 that Luther would nail his 95 theses to the door of the church there in Wittenberg. Germany. So by the time Calvin is born, Luther is kind of already up and running, um, and uh, Calvin is born kind of right in those earlier days of the Protestant Reformation. And that's going to somewhat quickly in Calvin's life begin to play a pretty important role. John was born to an overbearing father who would essentially plan out his life for him. So Calvin's born, and his father Gerard says, I've already got my son's life planned out for him. That was not very uncommon of those, of those days and those times. His father Gerard was a lawyer. Uh, John's mother would pass away when he was six, so he would really not have any, uh, almost any memory of her. So at age 11, John is sent by his father. He's sent to preparatory school in Paris. And the goal here is that he's going to prepare for his entry into the University of Paris. And what his father wants for him is for him to become a priest in the church. And so at 11, he goes to prep school. At 14, he enters the university to become a priest. And by age 17, uh, John Calvin has graduated with his Master of Arts degree. So he is off and uh, he is running. So it's now late 1525, it's early 1526. The Protestant Reformation is very much in full swing at this moment. Calvin is 16, 17 years old right through there. And because of the Protestant Reformation and everything that's kind of swirling around with that, his father Gerard kind of looks at the landscape of the church and thinks, mm, I'm not really sure I want my son involved in religion, in the priesthood, in the life of the church right now. And so he kind of changes uh, the plan for uh, John's life. It's kind of like God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life, all right? And so now what he is going to do is he's going to take John kind of out of that context and he's going to send him to study law at the University of Orléans, or as we say it, Orleans, all right? And so he's going to send him to law school, and really the whole trajectory of his life is, is then to be changed. However, 1531, Gerard suddenly passes away. And when he passes away, Calvin now feels a freedom 
where I can, you know, kind of live my own life now. I can get out from under dad's maybe heavy thumb, and I can kind of do the things that I want to do and, uh, you know, study the things that I, I want to study. So John moves back to Paris, and what he's going to do is he's going to study his first love, which is that of classic literature, all right? So that's kind of the plan for his life. But then there's some details here, the, the kind of the, uh, the, the summation of all those details is that John is going to actually return to law school where he's going to seek to receive his doctor of law degree. And it's while he goes back to complete this, this doctorate of law degree that John begins to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins to be introduced to the truths of Scripture that had been hidden, you remember, for so long from just kind of the average person, you know, sitting around. Um, the, the abuses and the perversions of the Catholic Church were such that if you were just kind of average, run-of-the-mill Joe or, or you know, John, um, there was a lot that you weren't receiving by way of instruction from the Word of God. Remember, copies of the Bible weren't in your hand. The only people that had copies of the Bible were the priest and those officers in the Catholic Church. And so as the Reformation begins to unfold, Calvin begins to hear the gospel, and he begins to hear of this work of the Reformation that is seeking to bring light into the darkness and to bring truth into the midst of all the corruption. At some point around 1532, John is now around 23 years old. He's born again by what he himself will call a sudden conversion. Uh, he doesn't actually write a ton about this moment, um, but throughout some of his writings, he references his conversion as a sudden conversion. Um, he's just kind of minding his own business, right? He's going to do classic literature and some law and all those things, and not even really thinking about the priesthood anymore, not even really thinking a ton about religion and, and the religious landscape of the day. But by God's grace, he hears the gospel, and he understands, and he believes, um, again, and he calls that a sudden conversion in his life. And here's now where things begin to get interesting for Calvin. So it's now November of 1533. John goes back to Paris, uh, and he's got a good friend of his, Nicholas Kopp, who preaches a message to open kind of the, the winter semester or the winter session at the University of Paris. And in that message, Nicholas is going to preach a pretty fiery message that has a lot of tones of reformation to it. And it actually then begins to leak out that Calvin was actually the one who wrote that address. Um, and so now, with this, uh, this tone of, of reformation and this pushback against the church, there are some people that, that are beginning to grow pretty restless with uh, Nicholas Kopp there at the University of Paris and this young upstart, John Calvin. They are so upset about the address that was given to open that winter session that cop is actually arrested and they're looking for Calvin, all right? So here's what Calvin does. Calvin dresses himself up like a vine dresser, grabs a, like a, a hoe and throws it over his shoulder like a farmer, lowers himself down out of his bedroom window after tying sheets together and thus escapes out of Paris and escapes uh, trouble and arrest. And so here's what Calvin thinks he's now going to do. I'm going to be fully aligned with uh, the gospel and the tenets of the Reformation, and Calvin's goal was to essentially just to kind of go away into seclusion, let things kind of maybe die down a bit. He's going to write, he's going to think, um, and just kind of stay in the shadows a little bit. So from 1534 to 1536, John is going to be in Basel, Switzerland. These years are going to be some of the most profitable years for Calvin's life, and really some of the most profitable years for all of Christianity and for all of Christian history, because it's in that two or three year period, uh, as Calvin is laboring there and studying there, one of the most important works in all of church history is going to be penned for the very first time in those years in Basel, Switzerland, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, again, this is one of kind of the landmark writings that certainly comes out of the Protestant Reformation, but it is one of those documents that has lasted throughout the centuries. This document would undergo five major revisions 
to get to the point where it is today. This, this is readily available for you. Um, you can buy this off Amazon, other places, um, Institutes of the Christian Religion. John initially writes this to send it back to France where his countrymen are really, especially his Christian Protestant brothers and sisters, are being persecuted for the cause of Christ. And so he sends back this document, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, to help comfort and encourage them, and just to honestly to help give some theological shape to the times that they're living in. Uh, Again, the Reformation, and there's a lot of, you know, denial of these tenets of the Reformation. There's a lot of confusion. So Calvin's original goal with this was, I just want to encourage my brothers and sisters in France. It would pick up so much steam, though, that Calvin would continue working on it. Again, five revisions to get it to kind of where it is today. This is probably a copy, uh, a resource that should probably be on your shelf if you don't have it. All right, so Institutes of the Christian religion. At this point in John's life, God's sovereignty and God's providence, it really begins to move in some powerful ways. John is going to leave Basel, Switzerland, and he's going to attempt to go um, to Strasbourg, France, which is on the uh, southern border of, of Germany and France. It's right on the Rhine River there. And John's plan, again, is I just want to kind of get away from all this. I want to go right. I'm going to serve the cause of the Reformation, just honestly in kind of in, in solitude and spending time with the Lord, maybe producing some documents. And so John leaves Basel, Switzerland. He's going north. I'm going to hang out in Strasbourg, France for a while, except Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor has got a little beef with the King of France, Francis I. They begin to fight in a war over some religious issues, some land issues. And because of that war, as Calvin is leaving Basel, Switzerland, trying to get south down to Strasbourg, France, because of the war, uh, the road to Strasbourg is blocked. And we, we can't go down that way. And so what Calvin does is he detours what he thinks is going to be for a night. He detours into Geneva, Switzerland. The plan was, I'm just going to dip in here, spend the night, and we'll launch out for Strasbourg, kind of bright and early the next morning. We'll go a different way. Here's the problem. God's sovereignty is at work in Calvin's life. And when Calvin pops into Geneva, Switzerland, he is met there by a guy uh, by the name of William Farrell. William Farrell is essentially the leader of the Protestant Reformation movement there in Geneva, Switzerland. He sees Calvin come into town and immediately goes, meets with him. They have a meal together, and Farrell begins to immediately work on Calvin. He believes strongly that the Lord has sent John Calvin to Geneva, Switzerland, and that it is the Lord's will that John stay in Geneva, Switzerland uh, to help with the efforts of the Reformation there. John is like, nope, I'm going to Strasbourg. It's quiet there. I'm not going to get into, you know, all of the hubbub here in Geneva. And Farrell tells Calvin, if you do not assist us in this work of the Lord, the Lord will punish you. And Calvin, as he would later write, is actually very startled by this and thinks, well, I don't want that. And so I guess I'll stay in Geneva, Switzerland. He would later write this about that encounter. Farrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately strained every nerve to detain me. He proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and tranquility of the studies I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. He would end that by saying, by this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I uh, desisted from the journey I had undertaken. And so then, in 1537, John Calvin begins his tenure there in Geneva, Switzerland, in what is going to become one of the greatest pulpits in all of the known world. He will ascend to the pulpit of the St. Peter Cathedral there in Geneva, and God begins to use Calvin 
across not only Geneva, Switzerland in really profound ways, but across the world and across the cause of the Protestant Reformation. Those early years of Calvin's tenure as pastor at uh, St. Peter's Cathedral, they would be some difficult years. Uh, Calvin sought to bring reform, obviously, to the church there in Geneva, Switzerland, across the landscape of the Reformation more broadly. And as a result, he constantly found himself at odds with the, uh, the, basically the city government there in Geneva. One of the things that they hated the most about Calvin is that Calvin had an understanding of what, um, we no longer really use this language anymore, but it was then called the fencing, putting a fence around the Lord's Supper table. And the idea was this, that only those who have evidenced a, a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, have followed in a believer's baptism, only those people that are clearly walking with the Lord Jesus Christ may come and take and eat and drink from the Lord's table. Uh, obviously, uh, that's going to rub against some sensibilities, all right? Nobody wants the table fence. They say this is absolutely for everybody, no matter where you stand in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin would say, absolutely not. This is you know, what we see in Scripture. And so Calvin, and, and a lot of the early reformers, later, to the Pur- later the Puritans that would follow them, they took this fencing of the table pretty seriously. Like if you showed up as an unbeliever in their midst and you tried to take the Lord's Supper, um, they just simply would not allow you to do that. All right, They were very serious about protecting that ordinance from the Lord, but also protecting the souls of those that would eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Um, push comes to shove uh, in this kind of back and forth between Calvin and the government. And finally, the government of Geneva, Switzerland says, you know what, John, you and your buddy William Farrell, you guys have got to go. And so they essentially run Calvin out of Geneva, Switzerland. Calvin will now be able to finally go to his beloved Strasbourg, France, and he, he thinks, all right, I'm done with Geneva I'm going to go, I'm finally going to get to go hang out and rest and kind of retire and read and write and all those things. While he goes to Strasbourg, though, he finds a wife, um, Idolette de Boer, and he marries her in 1540. Their marriage is going to be, it's going to be brief, and it is going to be full of trouble and full of sorrow. Um, Idolette would miscarry once, they would lose a daughter at birth, and then she would deliver a son uh, that just after a couple of weeks um, would, would die. Calvin was well acquainted with grief. And then, maybe worst of all, 1549, just nine years into their marriage, Ida Lett would pass away of tuberculosis. She was only 40 years old. And John was so grief-stricken by this. Um, it crippled him in a lot of ways for a long time. And Calvin would never marry again. Well, things are not going well. Uh, It's been a few years now. Things are not going well back in Geneva, Switzerland. So John gets an email one day and they say, hey, can you please come back to Geneva? And Calvin does not want to go back to Geneva. He's invited to return. He's invited to resume his pastoral work. Doesn't want to go. But once again, his old buddy, William Farrell, says, man, we got to go back. You got to go back to Geneva. Geneva, and he would later then write this in response to Pharaoh. He would say, I know that I am not my own master. I offer my heart as a true sacrifice to the Lord. And so Calvin would go back to Geneva, Switzerland. He walks into town on a Tuesday with Sunday uh, kind of quickly approaching. Here's what Calvin does. Calvin turns to the exact book of the Bible and the exact place that he had left off a few years earlier. And when he ascends into the pulpit of St. Peter's uh, Church there in Geneva, Switzerland, he starts preaching right where he had left off a few years earlier and continues that study. These these kind of uh, final years of Calvin's life and ministry in Geneva are going to be really, really fruitful years. Uh, The controversies of the past are, by and large, they are behind him. There was one final showdown between Calvin and a very prominent member of Geneva, Switzerland um, on an Easter Sunday. Uh, This prominent member of uh, Geneva comes in, 
did not know the Lord, was not a believer, never attended church, but kind of wanted to test Calvin a little bit. And uh, he walks in, walks right down front to where the Lord's Supper table is, and uh, gives all intention that he's going to receive Lord's Supper. Calvin stands in front of the Lord's Supper table and essentially says to him, no, you're not. There's kind of this uh, little bit of a showdown there. And finally, this, uh, this lost gentleman from Geneva relents, leaves, and that's essentially the end of uh, the, the controversy over that issue there in Geneva. Calvin's pastoral and his preaching influence, it's going to change the city of Geneva. All types of reforms are going to come across that city. And from Geneva, which in so many ways becomes a hub for the Protestant Reformation, these changes and these reforms are going to launch out from Geneva across the rest of the Protestant Reformation world. Calvin's health, though, had really sort of always been a problem. There were various ailments. Calvin would uh, suffer greatly uh, from like, things like kidney stones, which would just be so debilitating for him at various points through his life. As the years went by, uh, certainly by the time you get to early, kind of 1564, uh, his health begins to fail. So April 25th of 1564, Calvin is going to dictate his final kind of will and testament. A portion of that final will and testament reads this way. In the name of God, I, John Calvin, servant of the Word of God in the Church of Geneva, thank God that He has shown not only mercy toward me, His poor creature, but that He has made me a partaker of His grace to serve Him through my work. I embrace the grace which He has offered me in our Lord Jesus Christ and accept the merits of His suffering and dying, that through them all my sins are buried, Moreover, I declare that I endeavored to teach His Word undefiled and to expound Holy Scripture faithfully according to the measure of grace which He has given me. Just a month or so later, Calvin on May 27, 1564, he would die. He would be buried the following day. He had given specific orders for how that process should go about. And he intended that there be no real fanfare to this. And so his wishes were to be wrapped in a shroud and encased in a plain wooden coffin without pomp or elaborate ceremony. His grave was to be marked by a simple mound like that of his humbler associates in death. And again, all this in accordance with his own wishes. And when Calvin dies, uh, the, the one who would follow him there in Geneva Switzerland would say about him that the greatest light that the world has ever seen apart from Christ uh, has gone to be with the Lord. When you, we're just kind of taking a, a rock and we're just kind of bouncing it across the surface of Calvin's life and the way that the Lord would use him. Uh, but I wanted to try to kind of think about what are some things about Calvin's life and ministry that um, that are just legacy for us. Things that um, he, he left, and, and now for some 500 plus years, uh, that many throughout um, certainly the, the, the Protestant denominations that they have sought to emulate about Calvin's life. What were some of the major contributions of Calvin's ministry? He was certainly a, a theologian. Uh, he was certainly a reformer. He was a great leader. Um, but I want to maybe just kind of highlight uh, his efforts as a preacher and uh, then maybe at the end an aspect of Calvin's just kind of practical pastoral ministry. Um, you know, again, the, Calvin gets a lot of things kind of hung on him, some rightly and some wrongly. Uh, some things get attributed to Calvin that Calvin really never had anything to do with. Sometimes it said that he wrote things that he didn't actually write. If Calvin, I think, were able to kind of walk in the room uh, tonight and say, hey, the things that I really want to be remembered for, I think what he would say to us is I want to be remembered as one who faithfully taught God's Word and one who faithfully shepherded God's people. So I want to think about for a few moments just John Calvin as a preacher. And there are kind of really ten aspects of Calvin's ministry as a preacher of the Word of God that I would want to highlight for us tonight. So, ten aspects, 
number one, Calvin's preaching, it was intentionally biblical in its substance. It was convictionally biblical in its substance. Remember the day that Calvin is living in, right? Um, remember that you know, you've got a lot of abuses happening at the hands of the Catholic Church, a lot of abuses that are happening on you know, Sunday, the Lord's Day, when it comes to the Word of God. Calvin purposed in his heart that what he saw in Scripture was a call for those who preach the Word of God to do just that, to preach the Word. He said this, that when we enter the pulpit, it is not so that we may bring our own dreams and fancies with us. Calvin was intentional that what came out of his mouth when he stood in the pulpit was not his ideas, not whatever he wanted to talk about on that day, but he was deeply rooted in the reality that when the pastor steps into the pulpit, he has a sacred charge to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Secondly, Calvin's preaching, it was sequential in its pattern. So here's what that means. It means that Calvin preached verse by verse through books of the Bible. Nowhere is that more clear and more evident than when he comes back into Geneva, Switzerland, and he picks up exactly where he had left off after he had been run out of town a few years earlier. Calvin was convictional that the way that preachers best preach the Word, as Paul first exhorted Timothy, was to do so verse by verse. Often Calvin would go word by word, unpacking and undermining, not undermining, uh, digging out, mining out is what I meant to say, uh, the truths of God's Word. No doctrine was left untaught. No sin unexposed. No promise undelivered. It was just committed to verse by verse exposition through the Word of God. Thirdly, Calvin's preaching was direct in its message. Again, Steve Lawson has said this about Calvin. He did not launch his sermon with a captivating story or a personal anecdote. Instead, Calvin immediately drew his listeners into the biblical text. Uh, we've all heard sermons before. Um, if you preach long enough, you'll preach a sermon like this where it just kind of takes a long time sometimes to get the plane off the runway, all right? Like, you know, for whatever reason, there's a long story, there's maybe some funny jokes along the way, and your hearers are kind of left there in the pew like, man, are we ever going to get to the Bible, right? Um, your stories are great, you're maybe even a little funny, but can we just get to the Bible? Calvin was convictional that when people kind of came into the, the doors of his church, and when he got them for those few precious moments every Lord's Day, that what he wanted to do was to get straight to the text. Calvin understood that they don't need to hear from me, they need to hear from the Word of God. For far too long in the life of the church, the people had gone without hearing the Word of God. And so what Calvin intended was, I'm not going to entertain you with stories. When we open up the Bible, we're just going to get to work in the preaching and the study of the Word of God. So it was very direct in its message. Fourthly, Calvin's preaching, it was lively and it was fervent. Calvin said this, and I love this, it appears to me that there is very little preaching of a lively kind in the kingdom but that the greater part deliver it by way of reading from a written discourse. Calvin, guys, was a, he was a consummate preacher, but he was, he was a pastor who really wanted to connect with the people in the pew. And what, as Calvin looked around kind of the landscape of the church, what he found was, you know, guys in pulpits with a manuscript kind of head down just reading uh, from this manuscript. Now look, to be sure, the Lord uh, has used um, those that have preached that way. Jonathan Edwards uh, often would preach that way, just kind of reading from a manuscript, and the Lord used him to launch a great awakening in this country. But what Calvin believed is that the Word of God really is living, that it really is active, that it really is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's not boring, uh, and that it shouldn't be presented as such. 
And so as you read kind of some of Calvin's writings, and as you read of those who would write of Calvin, it seemed as though, as though that when Calvin preached, there was an energy to it. There was a liveliness to it. Uh, Calvin was a kind of a, also a prolific hymn writer. He loved music um, and sort of lamented uh, against the, um, uh, the drudgery that sometimes music had become, wanted lively uh, and enthusiastic singing and worship and certainly preaching of God's Word. Uh, Calvin understood that we are proclaiming the truth of the Gospel, that we are talking about the beauty of God, that we are talking about the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and these are not boring matters. And so he poured his heart into these moments of preaching uh, to connect with people in the pew, but then, 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 then to show them uh, the beauty and the glories of Christ from the text. Calvin's preaching was exegetical. It was exegetical. And here's what that means. It means that the point of the sermon, the point of whatever Calvin was seeking to say, that the point of the sermon was the point of the text of Scripture in front of him. He sought to take out of uh, the Scriptures what was there and to make that known to his people. Calvin understood that my responsibility is not to put my thoughts or my ideas into the text, but to take what God has already said, um, because in that is the truth, in that is the very Word of God, and I'm going to take that out of the text, and I'm going to give it to the people. Calvin would say this, the important thing is that Scripture be understood and explained. How it is explained is secondary. Calvin wanted to get to the point and to take out of Scripture what was there. Number six, Calvin's preaching was simple. It was simple. As a preacher, Calvin's primary aim was not to communicate to other theologians, but to reach the common person in the pew. As such, Calvin, though fluent, absolutely fluent, um, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, when Calvin preached, and, though, and when he preached, by the way, when he preached from the Old Testament, he was reading from the Hebrew text. When he preached from the New Testament, he's reading from the Greek text. And even though he's doing that, Calvin never tried to wow or amaze his audience with like big, long Hebrew, Greek words or phrases. He never uh, sought to try to impress them in any way with <clears throat> excuse me, the, the depths that he had mined out during his study during the week. He just simply wanted to give them the truth of the Word of God. He would say this, that preachers must be like fathers dividing bread into small pieces to feed their children. Uh, Calvin wanted people to taste of the goodness of God in His Word. And Calvin understood that uh, so often those in the, uh, the pews in front of him, they were like small children. So I'm going to tear small pieces off of this and give you bites that you can chew on and that you can swallow and digest and marinate on. We've all heard sermons in our day where it was maybe even biblically faithful and theologically rich and true, but in so many ways that maybe it would just fly over our head. Calvin never wanted to do that. He wanted to bring the Word right down into the pew so that the people could hear it and that they could know it and that they could apply it to their lives. Calvin's preaching, number seven, it was pastoral. Calvin had a heart for the people of God. Calvin is often depicted as sort of this cold ivory tower theologian who just didn't care a whole lot about people in the pew and nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, this was written about him. The Genevan reformer never lost sight of the fact that he was a pastor. Thus, he warmly applied Scripture with a loving exhortation to shepherd his flock. He preached with the intent of prompting and encouraging his sheep to follow the Word. And so, therefore, Calvin's preaching was always very applicable. 
again, not just theological premises, um, not merely even just the facts about the verse being set before his people, but because Calvin cared about his people and wanted them to know the Lord and apply his word to their hearts, Calvin was pastoral in the way that he sought to apply the scriptures to their lives. Calvin preached um, and he defended against the false teachers and the wolves of his day. One of my favorite Calvin quotes is this one, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off the wolves. Calvin understood what was at stake. He understood uh, some of the pitfalls that were still very present in those days of the Protestant Reformation. He understood the battle that was at stake. And Calvin sought, uh, again, even sometimes to the point of fencing the Lord's table to say, no, you're just not going to come in here. And you're not going to say or do these unbiblical things. Calvin's voice was, could be warm, and it could be winsome, and it could be gentle to his congregation. Uh, but he took that role of shepherding seriously. And if you mess with his people, especially when it came to perverting the truth of the Word of God, Calvin would use the voice to defend against the wolves. How much more might that also be needed in our day? We don't just give in to whatever passing philosophy or fancy that may come about in the life of the church. How many shepherds might also need, uh, need to take, uh, the, take up that voice to ward against the wolves? A couple more. Calvin's preaching was evangelistic. Um, and, and this is interesting, especially when you consider one of the things that so often gets said about John Calvin and uh, those that would agree maybe with his uh, theological persuasions. Uh, one of the great arguments against Calvin and what maybe has been commonly called Calvinism uh, is that it's not evangelistic. Um, that, uh, that it's a, a cold view of God's grace. It's a cold view of uh, that moment in Ephesians 1 talking about the predestining work of God. And, and, and the accusation against Calvin was that he doesn't believe in evangelism. doesn't believe in missions. And we're actually going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But Calvin's sermons, they're full. If you go read them even now, they are full. And in fact, I don't think you read a sermon of Calvin's where you don't see a plea to the unrepentant sinner to turn from their sin and to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His sermons are full of evangelistic appeal. Uh, and, and, and I think we would do well to know and understand and emulate these things and these aspects of Calvin's preaching. The last thing about Calvin's preaching is that his preaching was doxological. What Calvin intended is that his people, as they heard the Word of God, that they would worship God. Calvin would often end his sermons by saying this, Now, let us fall before the majesty of our great God. Calvin, what he wanted for his people was that they would turn their eyes away from the things of the world, away from the errors before them, that they would turn their eyes and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, being saved and kept by Him. I think there are many aspects of Calvin's preaching that we desperately long for and that we desperately need in our own day. Calvin was also, though, as we mentioned a moment ago, he was the consummate pastor. Many aspects of John Calvin the pastor, I want to just highlight one of these aspects for us. Calvin was a great leader. He was a great counselor. Uh, he and his wife Idolette, while she was alive, they would open their home almost daily uh, to, 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 con to the congregation uh, and the believers that he was surrounded with. He was, they were so hospitable and he often took in those that were, uh, that were poor. He would take in students who were at the university and who were learning and, and, and would spend time with them and teach them. He was a consummate pastor and shepherd. In one aspect, maybe that I think we ought to just highlight about Calvin's pastoral life is this. John Calvin was an avid proponent of evangelism and missions. And again, kind of the knock on Calvin, especially over the last 100, 125 years or so, has been that you know John Calvin was no evangelist. 
He didn't believe in missions, and if you're a Calvinist, that must mean like you hate people and you don't want people anywhere to be saved, right? And uh, it's maybe not quite that strong, but it's not that far off from it. Um, John Calvin, though, was an avid proponent of evangelism and missions. His sermons, again, they contain this clarion call for sinners to come to repentance in Christ for salvation. Beyond this, Calvin, and this is just an aspect of his life that maybe you just wouldn't know, Calvin was personally involved in the training and the sending out of missionaries from Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, he would send out over a hundred missionaries from Geneva back into France. From 1555 to 1560, in France, as a result of those missionary efforts in those five years, 100 churches uh, would be planted there in France. By 1562, just a couple of years later, that number of planted churches, new churches, where new Christians are gathering and being discipled, that number is now well over 2,000 with some 3 million members across those churches. Many of those churches numbering well into the thousands um, as the gospel uh, is, is going forth by the work and by the labor of these missionaries who were personally discipled. They were personally taught. They were personally sent out by Calvin himself. Furthermore, missionaries from Geneva not only would they have a large presence in France, but they would go across all of Europe. They would be in Italy, in the Netherlands, Hungary, Poland, Germany, England, Scotland, even as far away as Brazil. This is Calvin's Calvinism. It believed in evangelism and missions and the gospel to all the nations. John Calvin's Calvinism was evangelistic to the core. Despite modern day assertions that his theology and his points of theology, that they actually stifle evangelism and missions. Did Calvin have a profound understanding of the Bible's teaching on the sovereignty of God and salvation? Absolutely, he did. And what Calvin rightly understood is that God's sovereignty in salvation is not a deterrent to evangelism and missions, but because God has promised to save. And because it is God and God alone who can actually accomplish that work, we can and we should go out with the gospel uh, to the nations. We should make those evangelistic appeals in our sermons because God is going to save His people from their sins. So Calvin was deeply evangelistic and um, uh, mission-minded to assert as many have over the last 125 years, to assert that he was not. Or to uh, assert that, again, those maybe that follow some of Calvin's theological persuasions, to, uh, to say that he was not evangelistic or missions-minded is just simply to misrepresent John Calvin. Here's a couple final thoughts on Calvin, and then we'll try to answer maybe any questions that you guys might have. This is Calvin's greatness. His ultimate surrender to God. In this is Calvin's legacy for those of us who desire not simply to wear the five-pointed badge of Calvinism, but who desire to clothe ourselves in the humbling power of the Gospel. Let us not be so easily satisfied with a simple insignia of Calvinism. Rather, let us drape ourselves with Calvin's Calvinism. A Christ centered, spirit-empowered, God-glorifying, gospel-driven Calvinism that shines so brightly that the deceitful darkness of sin would be conquered in our hearts so that in turn, we might shine as the light of Jesus Christ to the dark world for His kingdom and His glory. And then this, we must capture, I think this is Lawson, we must capture the centrality and the pungency of biblical preaching once again. There must be a decisive return to preaching that is word-driven, 
God-exalting, Christ-centered, and Spirit-empowered. We desperately need a new generation of expositors. Men cut from the same bolt of cloth as Calvin. Pastors marked by compassion, humility, and kindness must once again preach the Word. In short, we need Calvins again to stand in pulpits and boldly proclaim the Word of God. We do want Calvins again. We must have Calvins again. And by God's grace, we shall see them raised up again in this hour. May the head of the church give us again an army of biblical expositors, men of God, sold out for a new reformation. That's in Lawson's book, his biography of John Calvin. If... uh, whether by anything you've heard tonight or maybe just your own curiosity over the years about Calvin, maybe if you've ever wanted to know more or read more or understand Calvin more, maybe understand some of the finer points of his theology more, and time just simply does not allow us to get into a lot of those finer points of Calvin's theology. But if you want to get more acquainted with Calvin, much, much, much has been written about him. Um, There is no lack of resources and information about John Calvin. Um, I'll just commend this one resource to you. Again, there are many more. You can kind of do your own research. Uh, John Calvin, A Heart for Devotion, Doctrine, and Doxology. Um, A lot of what, certainly his biographical information that you kind of heard tonight, a lot of that comes from here. Um, This uh, this book is edited by Burke Parsons with Ligonier Ministries. Some of you guys know him. Um, and then there are just a lot of contributing authors to this book, so you kind of get a wide range of understanding about Calvin's life and ministry. So that's a great resource. Again, there are other biographies that are really fantastic. Um, uh, Steve Lawson, I've quoted from him some tonight in his series, A Long Line of Godly Men, has a book on Calvin that uh, focuses predominantly on Calvin uh, the preacher. Um, John Piper in his series, The Swans Are Not Silent, in that series of books, He's got a little book on Calvin that really kind of focuses broadly on Calvin's life and, and, and ministry and really reveals more of Calvin's heart, kind of who he was and you know, the things that he was really passionate about. So I just want to put that before you if, um, if you're curious, if you, know, you have other questions about resources or you know, books, I'd love to kind of point you in the right direction. So again, I mean, when we're talking about John Calvin, we're, we're, we're talking about um, a, a short life, um, you know, some over 500 years ago, or not, maybe not quite, my math's not good, whatever that is. Um, um, uh, just, a, a, again, often a, a, um, a complex, sometimes confusing figure a, a little bit. As, as, you know, no, um, no saint that has come before us is, is perfect. Um, we, we understand that everybody has their blind spots. Calvin certainly had his. Um, But again, I hope that by our time tonight that you maybe get a little bit of a sense of who Calvin just really was, not just the things that maybe um, uh, his opponents would say about him. So maybe just a couple minutes left here. I I know there's probably tons of questions that could be asked about Calvin, his life and ministry, but um, are there any just kind of pressing questions that you guys have about John Calvin? Calvin?